Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is week seven for sociological theory. We're talking about symbolic interactionism. I hope you're all doing well. Um, this week concludes like the first half of the course, and we are finishing up with symbolic interactionism. It's the second micro perspective that we're going to be looking at in this class following our discussion of phenomenology last week. Symbolic interactionism along with structural functionalism, which we looked at with Durkheim, and conflict theory, which we looked at with Karl Marx, is often considered as one of the three main paradigms. If you look at like the crash course videos, if you look at any any conventional sociology textbook, they're going to mention these three paradigms um, as being foundational to uh, the discipline of sociology and, and being three foundational theoretical perspectives. Uh, we also include Max Weber's work, and Weber kind of straddles this line between structural functionalism and conflict theory. Um, and, oh, okay, so I apologize for that. I had to move locations. I believe I was talking about uh, just kind of reviewing where we're at um, with all of our perspectives and where symbolic interactionism fits in. So as I was saying, symbolic interactionism is, is known as one of these big three theoretical perspectives and of course Weber straddles the border between these macro perspectives offered by Durkheim and Marx and and because this is a social theory class a little bit higher level I also wanted to introduce the uh, perspective of phenomenology just to give us sort of a counterweight um, to symbolic interactionism I think we you know we focus on three sort of bigger macro theoretical perspectives coming out of the west and then we've got these two uh, micro perspectives, and I think they each are complementary to each other. And, and both of these perspectives, phenomenology and symbolic interactionism, focus really on 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 the individual in society, and specifically this notion of the self, capital S E L F. Um, phenomenology, perhaps even more so than symbolic interactionism, but as we can see in our textbook chapter on this perspective, the self has been a foundational component and understanding how we develop, like how, how, how we start to think of ourselves in our mind's eye for symbolic interactionism. This comes out of our interactions, both with other peoples and with the world of symbols that we inhabit in a given social or cultural or historical situation. And so phenomenology really starts from this notion of subjectivity and symbolic interactionism starts starts in this in this external sense, um, looking at this world of symbols. And, but each perspective is focusing on on how we come to think about ourselves in the context of the societies in which we live. Um, I don't want to spend too long talking about the textbook chapter. Um, George Herbert Mead, um, known as the father of the perspective, and then Herbert Bloomer really popularizes it later on in the 50s. Herbert Bloomer is a contemporary or was a colleague, uh, not a colleague, but um, was working at the same time as Irving Goffman. We read Irving Goffman here. He's just a little bit more lively um, in this dramaturgical analysis. Um, you know, we can pick through it a little bit, but I think it's just so intuitive. I think it's really useful for us in thinking about um, and, and sort of thinking about our daily interactions and thinking about the taken for grantedness of them. And I think this perspective really helps us take a step back from the way that we take our interactions for granted. And then we take our mannerisms and the ways that we speak, the way we will 
um, act differently in front of different people, for example. And it just seems like this natural sort of thing to do. Um, this perspective really helps us take a step back and understand what it is we're doing and why we're doing why we're doing these things um, as we go through our daily interactions. And so George Herbert Mead, really focusing on this notion of the self, he divides the self into two two parts: the I and the me. Um, this leads uh, are following from Calvin Cal- Charles Horton Cooley, excuse me, and his notion of the looking glass self, which is which is a uh, um, sort of the way that we see ourselves as a reflection of the way society sees us. And and W.B. Du Bois, who will be reading in a couple of weeks, really problematizes this notion of the looking glass self. They come out at around the same time um, with his idea of double consciousness when society sees you differently than you see yourself. And this, and this of course, um, a major problem for African-Americans, the racial other within modern society, society, modern society sees the racial other differently than, than, um, than they see themselves. So just thinking about some of these earlier theorists, um, really focusing on this idea of the self, another idea coming out of symbolic interactionism is how do we learn to be ourselves growing up in the world? And this is where socialization comes in. This is the only theoretical discussion of socialization. And we spend quite a bit of time talking about this in intro, for example, um, socialization, right? How we learn to interact with others in the world, a big part of socialization, the most important part of socialization, perhaps is childhood and early childhood. Um, This is where you sort of learn the ins and outs. You learn how to speak, you learn languages, um, behaviors, norms, mores, these sorts of things. Um, All of this comes through according to this perspective, the way that we interact, as I said, not just with other people, but with the world of symbols that we inhabit. And and when we mean a symbol, I just mean something that represents uh, another idea. And and an, an example that I like to do in my classes is what I'll do is I'll put up a picture or I'll draw something on, I'll draw a stop sign on on the whiteboard, right? Just a really quick Simple drawing, eight sides, an octagon with, with the letters S T O P in the middle. And I'll ask, I'll ask the class every time, "What is this?" And every time, people in the room will say, "It's a stop sign." I'm saying, "No, it's not a stop sign. It's a drawing of a stop sign." But the power of the symbol is such that we recognize it as the object that it is supposed to be representing. And of course, the stop sign is symbolic of something that we do when we're driving vehicles. Right. We see this symbol and we know what to do. It regulates our actions. And it's for very important reasons. But nevertheless, it is an interaction with a symbol. Right. And and so this is this is sort of where the symbolic interactionist perspective differs in many ways from the phenomenological perspective, really starting from this world of symbols and then thinking about how they regulate our actions. Not not quite so different as the way Durkheim thinks about social facts constraining and the coercive power of social facts uh the coercive power of social facts can be rendered legible right we we understand the coercive power of social facts through the way they are represented through through the symbols that they work through and so just i want to you know we're, we're moving towards this midterm assignment and so i want you to be thinking about ways to synthesize these different perspectives that we've looked at so far 
So just to reiterate the importance of symbols, when we think about this paradigm, um, I'll point you to page 279 in our textbook, right, talking about gestures and how gestures become significant symbols. For example, a peace sign with your fingers, right, the two, the two, the, the index finger and the middle finger going straight up and like a V, right? Um, this doesn't mean anything unless we already know this. There's already a shared meaning unless there's already a, 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 a context of familiarity. Um, between the sender of the signal and the receiver of the signal. Gestures become significant symbols when their meaning is shared by the indiv interacting individuals. And this is the essence of language. This is the essence of communication. In short, it is the essence of how we learn to become ourselves, right? And so, and so really starting from this externality, a very sociological way to think about the development of the self. In short, uh, Michelle Dillon argues here in our textbook, communication is impossible without symbols and language whose meanings are shared among those in a given social setting. And um, I don't know if y'all like science fiction movies, but um, there's a couple really good, like Alien, like first, there's a movie First Contact and Jodie Foster's like, well, how are we gonna how are we gonna communicate with these these aliens that are sending this this radio signal that clearly has a lot of information? She's like, well, math math is the only universal language, and she says that in front of Congress. And then we also have uh, what's the Dennis Villanueva one with like the aliens who come down in like the big like egg shaped spaceships, and and Amy Adams has to figure out what they're saying. Right? She's got to decode their language because communication between two parties is impossible without a shared symbolic language or meeting. And so if you're trying to talk with someone, for example, who doesn't, who speaks a different language than you, right? We start to use hand gestures, right? Universal hand gestures, these sorts of things, along with broken words, but really it becomes like this miming, this, this pantomiming, this, this sort of acting out physically uh, the words you're trying to convey. And this is, we have to do this with someone who doesn't understand the language that we speak because it's the only way to convey any sort of symbolic meaning across uh, a two parties, two or more parties. And so symbols at the same time, they have shared meanings. They can also have contested meanings. And, and this will really set the stage for us moving forward past the sort of white Western um, male perspectives that we've been looking at in this class so far. Michelle Dillon says here on 279 as well, we should recognize, however, that as feminists and race and cultural theorists would emphasize, and we're getting to that in a, in a couple of weeks, symbols and meanings are often contested, especially by minority racial and cultural groups and others in society whose everyday experiences make them feel excluded by the dominant symbol and meaning systems. And we could think about something like posting the Confederate flag and how some people say, well, it represents heritage. And then an increasing majority of people say, no, it means racism. Um, that's a very blunt example. I'm sure we could think of more. And this will be something that we'll be talking about um, as we move forward in discussion for this week. Um, I don't want to spend too much longer talking about our textbook chapter. In fact, our textbook chapter starting on page 281, really dives into the the, the sociology and, and theory presented to us. Um, and I think at one point in the chapter, Michelle Dillon's like, some people don't think of symbolic interactionism as theory, but it really does provide this sort of strong, well-developed mental framework for us to consider the way, the shape, the content of, of our interactions, as it were. And Irving Goffman really... Um, 
and his dramaturgical analysis present gives us one of the most potent tools to accomplish this. Um, so the dramaturgical analysis of Irving Goffman is essentially um, reiterating this famous line by Shakespeare, all, all of life's a stage. In other words, we can conceptualize all of our interactions in terms of a stage performance, right? As soon as we're interacting with someone, we are acting, right, with them. And, and they are acting with us. And, and we want this performance to go well. And therefore, we have to rely on the shared universe of symbols that we inhabit in order to be able to communicate, in order to convey the messages that we would like to convey. And, and in doing so, present ourselves, right? This is all about the self. Present ourselves in a way that we want to present ourselves. And, and our reading for this week dives into this, really thinking about the front stage, backstage, and, and the sort of spatial dimensions of the dramaturgical analysis. But this is just kind of an overview. Um, I'll let you read about this. Social roles, right? Role is another, um, you know, dramaturgical term. Um, we play a role. And, and if we think about the roles that we play on a given day, um, you know, roles, uh, the roles that I play on a given day are, are husband, father, and, and instructor, right? Those are three different roles with three different sets of expectations. And, and, and these, these roles need to be juggled. We often juggle these roles by allocating different segments of time to each one, right? We schedule out our day in accordance to the roles that we have to play. Um, the, the pandemic has kind of changed that, right? Roles and the time we allocate with them become overlapping in many ways with remote learning. We don't have the kids in daycare. And so things um, things kind of blend in a little bit. Um, and maybe you've experienced this in your lives as well. And this is something we can talk about, right? Thinking about how we could use these ideas in, in our daily lives for right now. Um, what else? I don't want to get too much into it. So he talks about a lot of like, we're going to get into more detail here later on. I do want to talk about one of Goffman's um, most famous areas of study are these total institutions. And, and I want you to be, I want you to definitely look at that on page 290, this section on total institutions. Um, these are institutions where individuals are often placed in there involuntarily, like prisons or asylums, um, where every aspect of an individual's life is controlled. And in fact, um, being in these total institutions is actually meant to produce kind of a new self, a self that is perhaps more compatible with uh, um, mainstream society, as it were, or in the case of the military, which is kind of close to a total institution, it's to, to create a new soldier self, right? Um, and so we will come back to this notion of total institutions when we talk about the importance and the need for backstage areas in our lives the context of Goffman's work. All right. Do I want to cover anything else? Um, passing. Yeah, this is how we get a, a get around stigma. So stigma is when stigma is when someone has a very visible and socially undesirable feature about them. So abominations of the body, blemishes of character perceived as weak will, or the tribal stigma of race, nation, and religion. Um, we get around these stigmas by trying to pass as not having these stigmas. Um, so thinking about 
passing racially. Um, where we have this famous example of Rachel Dolezal, a white woman passing as a black woman. Um, trust me, the opposite of that, black people passing as white people has been far more common, um, historically speaking. It is definitely looked down upon by the black community now, but it used to not be. Um, and this all has to do, right, passing, presenting off yourself, right, as maybe someone who you're not, right? The, when we think about this sort of dramaturgical analysis, to be critical about it, it really, there's a, there's kind of this element of dishonesty when we think about the fact that we play roles and we kind of turn on our performance and turn it off when we go backstage, we can relax and be more ourselves and putting up air quotes, be more ourselves in these backstage areas. And this is really where I think um, symbolic interactionism is kind of weak in thinking about the power of the self, how we don't stop being ourselves through all of these interactions. We just know because of the world of symbols that we inhabit that we need to act differently in different times and different places in front of different people. All right, so I'll move now from our discussion of the textbook to um, a direct discussion of uh, Goffman's work here in Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Chapter three, front regions and back regions. All right, so starting here, right, what is a region for Goffman? When Goffman talks about regions, he's not talking about like the South, or he's not talking about like Tuscany, which is a region in Italy, I think. He's not talking about regions in that sense, or like regional dialects, regional accents. He's not talking about that, those big jogs. He's talking about like rooms, right? We have front regions and back regions and the places where we live, where we work, right? Think about a restaurant is a great example of this. The front region of a restaurant is gonna be the dining room where the customers sit, right? Where business is done, where people eat. And the back region of that restaurant is gonna be the kitchen. And, that, and that's gonna be probably the clearest example. And he's got lots of examples of, of, of restaurants and, 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 and that specific space um, in this chapter. Um, the key thing when thinking about regions right here in this first sentence of the reading is that they are bounded to some degree by barriers to perception, right? What is a barrier to perception? Well, how do we perceive what right? we see? So anything that blocks our vision, we hear. So anything that we can't hear through, um, we smell. So anything that blocks a smell, a wall or something like that, um, we taste, right? These are all ways that we perceive. And so, uh, regions can be distinguished from each other in terms of their barriers to perception. Um, and then we think about, you know, some regions like a recording booth, right? It's going to have glass, so you can't like hear through, but you can see what's going on. Um, this all kind of determines the behaviors that can take place in these areas. But nevertheless, the front region, what distinguishes a front from a back region is the fact that in the front region, as in a stage in a theater, the front stage, um, this is where a performance takes place. And for Goffman, a performance is an interaction. And, 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 a, and a performance can be something like giving a speech up on stage in front of a lot of people. But it can also be, what does he talk about here? However, many performances involve as constituent parts, separate knots or clusters of verbal interaction. So think about being at a party. And he talked about a cocktail party where you will kind of mingle with a couple of people. Maybe you're going with a plus one or something like that, and you'll break off, and then you'll come back together and have that little conversation with your date. 
you know, talking about all the little conversations you've been having, and then you'll go back to talking about other people. Perhaps this is a work function. In other words, you're supposed to be sort of on. This may be different than a more informal party that you're having with your family or friends where, um, you know, different verbal clusters happen in different ways and with different dynamics. Either way, any of these situations, the politician giving a speech in front of a room full of people or the, the little clusters and, 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 and uh, sort of random groupings that we see at a cocktail party for golfmen, all of these consist of performances on various scales, right? All of the interactions at the cocktail party, golfman is conceptualizing as a kind of performance, right? As a kind of acting. And so, we're, and, and this is the, the link between performance and front stage is what is what distinguishes, right? This is what distinguishes the front from the back is the fact that a performance is taking place. And so the space can change, right? Or the, the performance can begin as soon as someone shows up. And we'll get to that when he talks about make work. Um, the performance of an individual in a front region may be seen as an effort to give the appearance that his activity in the region maintains and embodies certain standards. Are you acting right? Right? Is, is, are you following the norms? Are you following the mannerisms and the decorum expected of you in this situation? Once again, if you're at like a cocktail party thrown by your boss at their house or something like that, you're going to be acting different than if you're like, you know, hanging out, watching football on Sundays with your family, right? Um, so very different terms, and but it's still sort of an informal social occasion, right? But but very different levels. So is your performance measuring up to the standards, right, of the situation at hand? Um, this is what every actor in every interactional situation for Goffman wants to happen, right? Everyone wants these performances to go well. And so we are kind of forgiving at times when they don't go well. Um, but as long as these requirements are met, you still be getting the leeway, the moral requirements and the instrumental requirements here on page 67. Hmm. What else? What else? We are accustomed to assuming, here I'm on page 68, that the rules of decorum that prevail in sacred establishments such as churches will be much different than the ones that prevail in everyday places of work. So do we act differently at church than we do when we're at work? Goffman says yes, but he's like, it's not, it's not. The, the, the differences may not be so clear cut, right? We would think of church as maybe a more serious place. Work is less serious. Church is certainly a more sacred place, right, than work. Um, but here he says, while in church, a woman may be permitted to sit, daydream, and even doze, right? You kind of like just kind of zone out if the preacher's going on about too much, right? Being a little long-winded with the sermon or whatever, you just kind of like zone out. And that's kind of permitted, right? It's kind of, uh, it's kind of a norm in certain church-going crowds for that to be the case. As a saleswoman on the floor of a dress shop, on the other hand, she may be required to stand, keep alert, refrain from chewing gum, keep a fixed smile on her face, even when not talking to anyone. Just stand there and smile and wear clothes that she can ill afford, right? You've got to look nice if you're working in a dress shop. You probably need to wear like a nice dress or something like that. And so even though the sacredness of a place may be different, right, uh, we can see the example of church. The, a church may be even more of a backstage area for, for this woman than, than 
than being on the floor or the rules of front stage and backstage behavior may be different, right? At church, she's part of an audience. And so her performance is not essential to the overall performances taking place in the church that day, right? Probably the most important person is the preacher, right? And what they're doing. So, um, so what, what Golfman is getting at here is the sort of fluidity of these interactional environments. And, and another illustration of that fluidity is this notion of make work when the space doesn't change, but the level of surveillance does, which alters the performance of the characters, the actors, as it were, in the scene. Make work. It is understood in many establishments here on page 68 that not only will workers be required to produce a certain amount after a certain length of time, thinking back to Marx and wage labor, but also that they will be ready when called upon to give the impression that they are working hard at the moment of a shipyard. We learned the following. It was amusing to watch the sudden transformation whenever word got around that the foreman was on the hall or in the shop or the or the leadermen would rush to their groups. Quartermen and leadermen would rush to their groups of workers and stir them to obvious activity. Don't let him catch you sitting down was a universal admonition, even if like everything was already done, right? If the boss showed up, then you have to act like you're working because if the boss shows up and you're just sitting around, well, then you're just getting paid to do nothing from the boss's perspective, right? And so this becomes a notion of make work when sort of a backstage work zone becomes a front stage performance upon the appearance of a specific kind of audience, right? And so we have actors and then we have audiences. A lot of times we are both acting and being part of the audience. Um, audience, we're just observing, right? It's another word, a dramaturgical word for observing from Goffman's perspective. And uh, here on this topic of make work, I just want to take a moment to engage in some further theoretical synthesis. Uh, let's think about what Marx would say about make work and uh, and versus what Goffman says about it, right? Um, Goffman sort of under tells us like how this works, but but Marx may help us understand why this works. Why would workers suddenly start to work harder when their boss showed up? Maybe they don't want to lose their job. Maybe um, maybe they were not working very hard, and maybe they all of a sudden are working hard. Maybe they're not working very hard because they understand. Maybe they've got a little bit of a class consciousness about their position as workers, right? So Marx, Marx can tell us the why of this situation, but, but Goffman is much better at telling us how it happens, right? What does that look like, right? What is, what is a, a, um, sort of this, this, uh, this sort of semi-conscious resistance to um, industrial and oppressive working conditions? What does it look like in practice? Marx doesn't have a clear answer for that other than go march in the streets, right? But here Goffman is like, no, this is this is what happens when when the boss is away. Um, and so it's it's important to be thinking about multiple perspectives as we consider a given a given situation. All right, so moving on, right? He spent most of his time so far talking about this notion of the front stage or where a performance takes place. Um, of course, if we want to take this literally, um, you know, what do we need to get ready for a performance if we're, if we're actors on stage and in, in my intro class, you know, I, I pair this, we do, and we do a theory boot camp and actually pair symbolic interactionism with feminism. And, um, and so I show Billie Eilish's video, uh, I'm a bad, I'm the bad guy, that song. 
And, you know, when Billie Eilish, when she shows up for a concert, does she just, like, get out of her touring van and go through the front gates with all of the fans and all of the audience members and, like, go buy some popcorn and a soda and kind of chill out with everyone before getting on the stage and then performing? No, I don't think she does that, right? She probably, like, goes behind the stage first, backstage. She's got to get ready back there. Performers get ready backstage. It's where they can make sure that their costumes are ready, right? It's where they can go over lyrics, where they can go over a set list, where they can go over lines, where they can make sure all their props are arranged just so, so that the performance to follow will go smoothly. And so here we're talking about um, if the front stage is where we present ourselves to others, the backstage is where we kind of put ourselves together, so to speak, and where we kind of strategize and plan ahead. Um, you know, thinking about the stage analogy, but let's take it inside of our homes, right? Where our home is our backstage away from work in many places, but then we have areas in the home that are a little bit more backstage than others, like bedrooms and bathrooms, for example, are more backstage than others. Kitchens used to be more backstage in homes, but now it's seen as a mark of leisure. If you're kind of a foodie, right? There's a class association with that. We have more open floor plans in homes with the kitchen sort of flowing into the living room. And so this is a reflection of cultural changes, but but the regional activity, that regional, the regional uh, flavor there is still is still present when we look at home designs. It was suggested earlier, page 69, that when one's activity occurs in the presence of other persons, some aspect of the activity are expressively accentuated in other aspects which might discredit the fostered impression are suppressed. It is clear that accentuated facts make their appearance in what we have called the front region. This is what we want to convey. Just as it should be clear that there may be another region, a back region or backstage, where the suppressed facts, what we really think about that cocktail party, what we really think about our boss, right? This is going to be something that we would share with the plus one that we brought to the boss's cocktail party backstage in the car afterwards, for example, or perhaps in a hallway just off the main room for just a couple of seconds, right? Just to kind of check in, right? You have that little backstage interaction. Hey, are you having fun? Should we go soon? Right? That sort of thing. Um, for Goffman, this is all sort of layered onto it, and, and these moments can be very fleeting, and the back region can be very fleeting in that sense, or it can be like the, an entire other room, right? Like a bedroom, for example. Um, here, grades of ceremonial equipment, such as different types of liquor or clothes, can be hidden so that the audience will not be able to see the treatment accorded to them. Here, devices such as the telephone are sequestered so that users will be, will be able to use them privately. It's kind of an old-fashioned. This is written back in the 50s. Here, the team can run through its performance, checking for offending expressions when no one is present to be affronted by them. And this is another aspect of it, right? So far, we've been talking about the sort of individual uh, level of the backstage, but the backstage can also be a team thing where you have a group that gets together in a backstage area to talk about a group performance, right? Performances don't just happen on the individual level. They also happen on the group level. Think about team sports or an ensemble cast or that sort of thing. Please excuse me. Sorry, I had to sneeze. 
uh, a good example of like a team backstage and I'll probably, I'll show up try to provide a video of this is like the in a movie in like a heist movie when like the team gets together and like it's a bunch of robbers that don't really know anyone and uh and they get together and and there's the leader who's got like the plan for the heist and the leader goes over the plan with the team and they're like well that's gonna be hard and leader's like well i got everything covered and of course i'm thinking of like the oceans 11 movies but there have been so many heist movies where the exact same scene takes place where the team gets together to plan the heist right that can't take place at the bank right it's got to take place away from the bank it's got to take place away from the casino in a backstage area where everything can be planned and strategized away from the watchful eyes of the audience right um and then here we have um goffman talking about this sort of psychological uh the psychological um importance of the backstage here the performer can relax, he can drop his front, forgo speaking his lines and step out of character. Simone de Beauvoir, who we're going to be reading here in a couple of weeks, provides a rather vivid picture of this backstage activity in describing situations from which the male audience is absent. What gives value to such relations among women is the truthfulness they imply. Confronting man, woman is always play-acting. She lies when she makes believe that she accepts her status as the unessential other. She lies when she presents to him an imaginary personage through mimicry, costumery, and studied phrases, or perhaps outlandish fashion. These histrionics require a constant tension when with her husband or with her lover, every woman is more or less conscious of the thought, I'm not being myself. With other women, women, a woman is behind the scenes. She is polishing her equipment, but not in battle as she is when she is in the world of men, which is harsh and sharp-edged. It's with resounding voices and crude lights. With other women, she's getting her costume together, preparing her makeup, laying out her tactics. She's lingering in dressing gown and slippers in the wings before making her entrance on the stage. She likes this warm, easy, relaxed atmosphere, for some women, this warm and frivolous intimacy is dearer than the serious pomp of relations with men. And so here's the psychological importance of the backstage. Remember, it's 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 the performance is when you present yourself. The backstage is when you put yourself together. And so and so each becomes important. And then we get we take our feedback. Right. We 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 are um, reflective, right? We think about our performances and we'll say that didn't go well. So maybe I should present myself in a different way. All of these things kind of happen backstage as we as we kind of go back and rehash the day, these sorts of things. Goffman asserts here that performers go out of character, however, when they go into the backstage. But as I'm suggesting here, it seems as if the backstage is where we can really be ourselves, where we can actually become our characters, so to speak. And as you know, thinking about the ongoingness of the self, um, it's where we can drop the act and be our true selves. One wonders if that were able to be the case, right? If, if, um, in front stage activities, um, so, you know, I just, the more I read this, the more I want to mind this notion of, of the, dis, the, the, maybe this, this, latent dishonesty associated with understanding our interactions in terms of performances and front stage backstage. 
And so because the backstage is so important in how we, quote, put our, and how we not, quote, this is what I'm saying, how we put ourselves together in order to uh, execute the performance to come, it's very important that we are able to control our backstage, that we have some agency over how it's set up, that we um, are able to do the things that we need to do without being surveilled, without being watched, so to speak. And so he talks about, and he's got all these examples, right? He just goes from example to example throughout here. And he talks about how, um, you know, you drop your car off the, the mechanic and, and the mechanic is kind of a backstage thing for them to fix the car. They don't want you kind of hovering over them because a mechanic, right? Well, will, you will drop off the car that's broken and then you will come back to get it and it will be fixed. But the mechanic may make mistakes here and there in the course of the fi of fixing the problem. And these are things that they don't really want you to see because that would not fit with their performance, right? With their role as a competent mechanic. And so that becomes, um, you know, becomes an important way of controlling the backstage and therefore managing and presenting the self for the mechanic to be able to do the work away from the eyes of the paying customer. Um, and, and, and that's just one example. He goes into these other examples here. For example, he talks about the ways that the, uh, the management and the wait staff at a hotel in the Shetland Islands would fight over having the door to the kitchen open. The, the wait staff wanted to have the kitchen there so they could do their jobs better, so they could look at uh, which tables needed their glasses refilled, which tables needed more butter, which ones you know, were finishing their meals and ready for their plates to be taken. The managers wanted the door kept shut so that the diners could not see into the back region and see into the kitchen. Goffman's like, why don't y'all just cut a circle in the door and make like a little peephole, right? That would have been helpful. He talks about that on page 72. He talks about broadcasting work. And here is where, um, you know, I think this section on broadcasting work talking about TV broadcasters and being on the radio, that sort of thing. This is where we could really talk about our digital lives. And this is something I want us to talk about in our small group meetings. And then we'll talk about it in our large group Zoom meetings on Thursday. An announcer may hold the sponsor's product up at arm's length in front of the camera right here by this while he's like holding his nose and like making a joke about it with his teammates. Professionals tell exemplary tales of how persons who thought they're backstage and we thought they were on backstage and were in fact on the air. And so um, we talk about these as like hot mic moments when you don't know you're being recorded, but you are being recorded. Um, and this is when we see we get this the, a true look into someone with, when they're being recorded and don't think they're being recorded. Um, and he talks about. A final example of backstage difficulties is found among exalted persons who are seemingly afforded no backstage um, to be around, to, to have no, you're not allowed to have backstage interactions with them because of their highly exalted status. Persons may become so sacred that the only fitting appearance that they can make is in the center of retinue and ceremony in terms of this extremely ritualistic type of interaction like you would have with a king, for example. It may be thought improper for them to appear before others in any other context, for example, like hanging out at a restaurant or a cafe with the Queen of England, right? That would like that would never happen because because of her exalted status, right? You can never 
like she can never be seen in that backstage area because of what she symbolizes in terms of her title and who she is. Throwing in that word symbol there. Um, what Queen Victoria enforced the rule that anyone seeing her approach when driving in her pony cart on the palace ground. So she would like driving a pony cart was not something that like a queen or proper lady or an aristocratic lady would have done. You would have had like a servant drive you around in a carriage, for example, a pony cart would have been like something like farmers would have used. And so to see Queen Victoria, um, queen of the British empire riding around the palace grounds in a pony cart would have been like this weird thing. And so you weren't allowed to look at her. Um, enforce this rule that anyone seeing her approach when driving in her pony cart, which is just an adorable image on the palace grounds should turn his head or walk in another direction. And sometimes great statesmen like politicians and leaders of parliament, one may imagine were required to sacrifice their own dignity and jump behind the shrubbery when the queen unexpectedly approached or else you would be caught um, witnessing the queen in sort of a backstage act. And that would not have been right. Um, so we think about like individual backstage stuff, uh, sleeping. Um, Goffman gives us three specific examples here, pooping, sleeping, and sex. Um, as examples of like, like this is just what we like, we do this by ourselves, right? Uh, or with our intimate other people, um, right? This is extremely backstage type behavior. And, and, and it, this needs, it's, it's it, we want to control that, right? This is why bathroom stalls have locks on them, right? This is why bedrooms lock. This is why the beds are behind closed doors. Right. This is this is because of this need to control it and to not let other people witness it. And so what happens when we don't control our backstage? Right. What might that look like? Can we think of examples? Where our backstage is is not under our control, where we do not have agency in this this space, this sort of conceptual and actual space where we put ourselves together so that we can present ourselves the way that we want other people to see us. Um, Goffman spent quite a bit of time, and this is going back to what I was talking about, total institutions, right? A mental asylum, a prison. These are places where people inside don't have backstages, right? Inmates are under constant surveillance by guards, by cameras, by each other. Um, don't have, or, or, and then if you're not right, if you're not, um, sharing a cell with someone, you could get put in isolation, which is, which is even worse where you don't have a front stage, right? You're not even, you're not even given, you can't present yourself to anyone. And so what becomes of yourself and, and, and so solitary confinement becomes sort of the opposite, right? The punishment within a total institution that takes away your backstage is to also take away the front stage as well, leaving you nothing but in sort of this, this weird liminal backstage place in solitary. Um, once again, these total institutions are all about changing the self. And so we can think about the backstage as being this sort of anchor for the self, where once again, it's where we put ourselves together, it keeps us 
right? It keeps ourselves together. And so we become fragmented in the absence of control of the backstage and therefore able to be sort of, we can, ourselves can be rearranged, right? By institutional powers that be, such as in a mental asylum or prison or in the military, for example. Um, so I really, you know, one of the one of the criticisms of symbolic interactionism as a perspective is that it is not a critical theoretical perspective. And I think um, we can use a lot of what Goffman is talking about here to think critically about the social world and think about the importance of the importance of a backstage and and the sort of um, the sort of damage that constant surveillance does to the self. Once again, linking this notion of this, this 1950s theory to our current world with our digital lives where surveillance is um, increasingly sophisticated and secretive and increasingly um, and increasingly profit-driven in many ways. So once again, this is, this is something that I'd like us to work towards um, as we move through our discussions on this topic this week. And so I'm about 44 minutes into this podcast, and I do want to um, wrap this up in a little bit. Um, I was just kind of looking through the rest of the reading. It's really just more examples and more variations of this basic theme, front and back regions. And he's giving us plenty of examples of this. Um, and he talks about, you know, um, how a back region, there could be back region styles. There are rooms and areas devoted to back regions like uh, locker rooms or hunting lodges or, or powder rooms or these sorts of places that are like backstage areas. But then um, there could also be a backstage style, such as when a group of actors are sort of on the stage without an audience in the room and they're rehearsing, right? So they're on the stage, but it's still like there's a backstage style there um, or like in a, in a, in a small restaurant where, the, the staff of the restaurant during their breaks will kind of hang out in the back booth next to the kitchen door. Um, even though they're in a front stage area, they're still adopting these backstage mannerisms while they're taking their breaks and these sorts of things. Once again, endless variations on this concept. And then I think when we, when we look towards, um, when we look towards our digital lives, there's another like level of these endless variations. Um, so, so this is something I'm looking forward to discussing with you this week. Next week, we're going to be, um, next week is movie week. I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, watch the movie Office Space. I've already told you, I think, and there's even the sessions from last week. But the movie's going to be Office Space. I'll send out an announcement. And I'll also um, attach some videos, like a heist planning scene, um, maybe a getting ready scene, like the getting ready scene from Legally Blonde. Um, that's like the opening credit scene, I think, from that movie. Um, Please let me know if you have any questions. I think, um, you know, Goffman is probably the easiest person to read of all the people that we've read so far in terms of the accessibility of the language. Um, the idea itself is simple to contemplate and to think about. But then when you start to think about the variations, when you th start to think about the sort of layering of front stage and backstage, and when you start to think about how um, we can have the, the level of the self and then the level of like the group and the team performance. Um, then it starts to become more and more complex. Um, but once again, I just think that the, the, the analysis itself, that dramaturgical analysis gives us so much room to work with. And um, it's such a rich sort of uh, uh, frame to use another Goffmanian term. It's just just a rich frame for us to think about the way that we interact. Um, it's almost a sort of natural way to think about it. If you, 
if if you may allow me that. So um, you know, take think about the examples he talks about here, but also think about you know online. Think about how front stage, backstage is different in COVID. Um, think about how it used to be. Think about your daily lives. Think about the roles that you play, that you step in and out of. Right, how you prepare for these roles in backstage ways. Um, you know, just really, you know, um, think about this and I hope your small group meetings go well. I look forward to seeing you on Thursday and we'll start shifting gears here toward thinking about our midterm assignments after that. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye bye.